0: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Perplexity, a mystery podcast. I'm your host, Kadra. Thank you so much for listening. I'm excited to be back in the podcast closet. I took a little break from recording and did some batch recording for you guys. I hope you've been enjoying those episodes. Uh, Last week, I did an episode about out-of-body experiences, which was really interesting. So If you're interested in that topic, definitely go back and check that out. I am home from work today because we had a crazy ice storm because Texas loves to get ice. And we also don't love to provide uh, the proper treatment for our roads, like a lot of, you know, sand trucks and whatnot. So the roads are insanely icy today, not safe to drive on. So I'm going to be home for... Probably the next two to three days because the roads are supposed to be really bad. So I thought, what better time to record? And today's story is going to be listener requested. So just remember, I take requests. You can always send them to me. Or if you want to share a story of your own with me, you can email me at perplexitymysterypodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Instagram for updates or to DM me at perplexitymysterypodcast. And please don't forget, if you've been enjoying the podcast and you haven't yet, take two seconds, leave me a five-star review on whatever platform you're listening on, just hit the star rating option when you pull up the podcast, and follow the podcast. Don't forget to do that. That way you know when a new episode has been released. The sources for today's episode are all going to be in the show notes, so look at those if you're interested. Trigger warning, content warning for today's episode... Today's episode is a true crime case, so there are going to be some disturbing topics. Listener discretion is advised for listeners below the age of 13. All right, everyone, wherever you are, sit back, settle in, because today we're going to be talking about what has become known as one of the biggest true crime mysteries in texas history after thousands and thousands of leads have been followed up on hundreds of interviews and dozens of searches this fort worth case remains unsolved on december 23rd 1974 just two days before christmas three young girls went shopping and were never seen again this is the story of the fort worth trio So on December 23rd in the morning, 14-year-old Lisa Renee Wilson, who went by Renee, was eager to get to the Army and Navy store where she had a pair of jeans on hold. Her 17-year-old friend, Mary Rachel Trilica, I'm not sure how to say her last name. It's T-R-L-I-C-A. So Mary Rachel went by Rachel and She agreed to drive Renee to the mall. So after they were gonna pick up these jeans, they were gonna continue their day shopping at the South Seminary Mall, and they were gonna get some Christmas presents. You know, it's Christmas time. Nine-year-old Julianne Mosley, Terry's little sister, who we'll talk about a little bit later, also came along for their trip after begging her mom to go. She basically didn't want to be home, bored by herself. I think the girls were on Christmas break and the parents probably went to work. So she had begged her mom to go and eventually her mom bought in and agreed. So Rachel, again, was only 17 years old at the time and she was a student at Southwest High School. But she also was married to a 22-year-old man named Tommy Trillica, and they had a two-year-old stepson, or she had a stepson from Tommy's prior marriage. So Tommy and Rachel had only been married for about six months. Tommy had also been married and divorced before, and 14-year-old Renee also had a boyfriend, Terry Mosley. So this was the older brother of nine-year-old Julie Ann. So, Renee assumed that Terry would be joining them at the mall, but Terry changed his mind last minute. And he would later tell NBC's Dateline that this was because his friend was going to the hospital to have an operation and he wanted to be there for him. He had, however, just seen Renee that morning and he had given her a promise ring. So, it's the morning of December 23rd, 1974 just a little before noon, and the three young girls set out on their shopping trip. After successfully picking up Renee's jeans, they headed to the Seminary South Shopping Center. A number of witnesses saw the three girls there wandering around various stores. They had to be back home before 4 p.m. because Rachel and Renee were going to a Christmas party, so they needed enough time to get ready and Julie's mom had also given her a curfew. But soon enough, it was four o'clock and the girls were nowhere to be seen. Then six o'clock came and their parents were very worried. Some family members stayed and waited by their telephones while others drove up to the mall together to investigate. So when some of the family members arrived, at the mall they go behind the Sears and there behind the Sears in the parking lot they find Rachel's 1972 Oldsmobile. The car sat alone and it was locked and it appeared that the girls had made it to the car at some point because their Christmas presents were in the back seat on the floorboard. So once the girls families find this they swiftly notified the Fort Worth Police Department and their case gets passed to the youth division of the FWPD Missing Persons Bureau. So that night, the fathers of each of the three girls, armed with a shotgun, returns to the mall, and they staked out the abandoned Oldsmobile, waiting for anyone to return. So the next day, Rachel's husband, Tommy, then gets a strange letter in the mail. The letter was written in a childlike scribble, And it said, I know I'm going to catch it, but we just had to get away. We're going to Houston. See you in about a week. The car is in the Sears upper lot. So Tommy brings this strange letter to Rachel's family. But when they look at it, they're immediately suspicious because the envelope was addressed really formally. It said it was to Thomas A. Trillica instead of just Tommy. And Rachel never called Tommy anything other than Tommy. Not only this, but Rachel's name was written in the upper left-hand corner of the envelope, and her name initially appeared to be misspelled. So the L in Rachel originally was like too short of a loop. It was written in cursive, and it looked like a cursive E. And then whoever had written it went over that E and pen, making a taller loop to form an L. So it was like they didn't even know how to spell her name. The letter had also been posted before news of the girl's disappearance had been widely publicized in the media. So whoever wrote it would have had to have known about their disappearance before the rest of the community did. Then they looked at the stamp on the letter And they realized that the stamp had been canceled that morning on December 24th. So all of these findings together indicated that the letter was written and mailed on or right around the time that the girls disappeared. So the cancellation for the letter did not include a city, and the zip code of the cancellation was blurred out. So they couldn't quite tell where it came from, but investigators interpreted the information they had that the letter had been mailed from either Throckmorton, Texas, from Eliasville, or from Weatherford, Texas. So they knew it was somewhere around this area where the letter had been mailed out from. The address on the envelope had also been written in pencil while the actual letter was written in ink on a sheet of paper that was too wide for the envelope. So this would indicate that the envelope and the letter had been written at separate times and possibly in separate locations. Handwriting experts would later examine the envelope and the letter, including experts across the nation and from the FBI. One investigator thought that the handwriting matched a known sample of Rachel's, but these efforts yielded results that were inconclusive, ultimately. Six weeks goes by since the girls have disappeared. And it's the night of February 6th. It's late. It's about 11 o'clock. And the phone rings at the Mosley's house, Julie's house. So Julie's mom answers the phone and she says hello several times and she's not hearing any response. So she's just like, hello, hello, hello. But after what seemed like an eternity, a voice moaned on the other end of the line and said, mama. And this rattled Julie's mother because it sounded like Julie. It appeared to be the voice of a young female and Julie's mom recognized the voice to be Julie. So she asked the caller, is this Julie Mosley? And the caller said, yes. So Miss Mosley would later tell the Star-Telegram she was convinced that the person on the phone was Julie. She said to the newspaper, quote, I'd be willing to swear it was her. She said mama once more and was just starting to say something else when the phone was hung up. Unfortunately, as is the case in a lot of these investigations, the Fort Worth police decided to believe this letter and they treated the girls as runaways. Remember, these girls are nine, 14, and 17. So because the girls were treated as runaways, Rachel's car was never processed for evidence. And so this resulted in possibly useful forensic evidence slipping away. So Terry Mosley, Julie's older brother, and Renee's boyfriend told Dateline he never believed his little sister and girlfriend would have gone away of their own volition. And even if Rachel had meant to, why wouldn't she have just taken her own car? Like, why Why they need to abandon it in the parking lot? So there was also the issue of Julie coming to the mall last minute, kind of as a stand-in for Terry. If the other two girls had meant to run away and leave their homes, why wouldn't they have protested harder about nine-year-old Julie coming along with them? Why would Renee or Rachel have been willing to involve Terry? So the families aren't buying this running away theory at all, and they continued to search. They would hand out missing persons flyers, they contacted newspapers across the country, and then a year went by, and family members started to mistrust each other. Rachel's younger brother, Rusty Arnold, voiced his suspicion of their sister Deborah, and Deborah was living with Rachel and her husband, Tommy, at the time that she went missing. Deborah and Tommy had once been engaged, and Rusty became convinced Deborah knew more about the disappearances than she was letting on. So in a 2000 interview with the Star-Telegram, Deborah was interviewed, but she maintained her innocence, and she said, quote, I know he, Rusty, blames me. I know he thinks I had something to do with it. Rusty thinks this letter that Tommy got the next day, he thinks I wrote it. I didn't write this letter. I don't know who did. I don't know what happened to my sister. Maybe white slavery. That's the only thing that makes sense to me. I have nothing to hide. So I guess she's alluding to sex trafficking, which is a valid theory, I guess. Um, Deborah also brushed off her engagement with Tommy calling it casual and not a big deal. So meanwhile, police handling of the case was also called into question. According to the Fort Worth Weekly, Renee's brother Richard Wilson was once told that officers were being sent out on a search and the tip had suggested that the search may contain the girl's bodies. But Richard Wilson followed the team of investigators and He claimed to have seen them go and wait at a coffee shop near the South Side before they came back and said that the search was unsuccessful. (laughs) Which if that's true, that is so messed up. So this case was highly publicized. And because of this, like in a lot of cases, the police began to get tons of phone calls of sightings and offers of assistance from psychics so some people would call throughout Texas saying that they knew where Rachel Renee and Julie were in early 1975 one man said that he was a friend of Rachel's and he had seen the girls inside the mall just before they disappeared he also said that he briefly spoke to Rachel and it appeared that there was another person with the girls during the same time frame, some women's clothes were also found in Justin, Texas, but it was later determined that the clothing didn't belong to any of the three girls. So the families eventually take matters into their own hands, and they actually hired a private investigator, and this person's name was John Swaim. In August of 1975, Swaim discovered something really strange. So there was a 28-year-old man. And this man worked for a local store. He had been making a lot of obscene phone calls in the area. And that's what they're described as, is obscene. So I don't know exactly what that entails, but it sounds like pervy, creepy, inappropriate calls because he was calling all these young women that had applied to a job at their store. And Rachel had recently applied for a job at the store as well. So basically, he was using his position to obtain information from these young women and girls. This man also lived in the same neighborhood as Rachel's parents, but had moved away shortly after Rachel got married. In April 1975, Swaim went to Port Lavaca with 100 volunteers, and they looked under a local bridge because they had gotten a tip that the girls had been killed and taken there but when they searched the bridge, no evidence was found. A year after this, three skeletons were found in Brazoria County by an oil drilling crew, but forensics determined these bones belonged to a teenage boy and two other females that weren't identified as any of the girls. So unfortunately, none of these tips panned out and the case remained cold. In 1976, Tommy Trillica filed for divorce from his missing wife Rachel he also got married again and moved to Throckmorton he lost contact with his former in-laws there was another strange development in 1979 when the private investigator Swaim died from suicide following a drug overdose Swaim had ordered all of his files from the case to be destroyed So I don't know what's going on there, but definitely shady to me. In the spring of 1981, the police were called again to investigate a swamp area in Brazoria County because human remains had been found. But it was again discovered that these bones didn't belong to any of the three girls. There were a lot of other alleged sightings of the girls throughout the years. A store clerk said she had seen the girls the day they disappeared Getting into a yellow pickup truck near the mall. And a different witness came forward in 1981 to report something similar. In fact, this other witness claimed to have seen a man apparently forcing at least one girl into a van. And they said they tried to step in to question what was going on, but they were told to stay out of this quote unquote family dispute. Another witness approached local news during a cold case review of the disappearances in 2001. He said he had seen three girls talking to a young male security guard that day inside a pickup truck. He claimed that they were laughing with the security guard before the vehicle drove away with them all in it at around 11.30 p.m. on December 23rd. When asked why this person hadn't come forward with this information sooner, they insisted that they had, but that the tip was never followed up on. So some of the girls' family members are passing away, never knowing what happened to the girls. In 1999, a $25,000 reward was offered by a local private investigator, Dan James, for any information that could lead to an arrest and conviction in the case. The case of the Fort Worth trio was reopened in January 2001, and it was assigned to a homicide detective named Tom Bocher, B-O-E-T-C-H-E-R, so I think it's Bocher. and Bocher believed the girls left the mall with someone they trusted. He was quoted saying, We can say they were at one point seen with one individual, but we believe there was more than one involved. Meanwhile, a new generation of cold case detectives and relatives, including Terry Mosley and Rusty Arnold, were still tirelessly following up on any potential clues. Rusty was 11 years old at the time that his sister Rachel disappeared. So as an adult, Rusty did a lot of work on the Fort Worth Trio case. And in 2013, Rusty told Blog Talk Radio he had been through a convicted serial kidnapper's house named Mike DeBardlebin. and Mark had been notoriously known as the mall passer. Mike had lived only a few minutes away from Rachel's house around the time of the disappearances. In 2018, Rusty Arnold investigated another person of interest, and found out that this person lived within five miles of Benbrook Lake and had recently disposed of their car after the three girls vanished in 1974. So Arnold began to wonder if the car had been disposed of in Benbrook Lake. So he gets this marine salvage company together, and using sonar technology, they were able to find three cars that were submerged in the lake. So it seems like it took a long time though to get these cars pulled out. It seems that they did them one by one. So in September, 2018, Arnold, his mom, and more than a hundred friends and family gathered at Benbrook Lake and the Marine Salvage Dive Crew began to work on retrieving these cars. So the first car that was pulled out was a 1960 Corvair but the car didn't have any evidence that could be linked to the missing girls. A month later, the second car was taken out, which was a 1976 Lincoln Continental. So this was ruled out because this car would have been made two years after the girls had disappeared. And then another year later, in 2019, the dive team attempted to remove the third car, But the car was so severely rusted that when they tried to pull it out, it fell apart. In a 2020 interview with the Fort Worth Weekly, Rusty Arnold also remembered that he got a phone call at work one day from a woman who claims to be Julie Ann Mosley. The woman was skeptical about aspects of her past and believed that she had been abducted as a child. So she had seen a picture of Julie online and she tracked down Rusty and sent him a modern day photo of herself. And Rusty and even Julie's own mother were convinced that this was Julie. And the investigators had also made these mock-up photos of the Fort Worth trio to estimate what they would look like as adults. So I like to imagine that they compared adult julie's photo to this woman's photo and they must have looked very similar like i said rusty and even julie's own mother were convinced it was julie but dna testing was done and it was later revealed this woman was not julie ann mosley so there's tons of theories as to what could have happened to the fort worth trio some believe at least rachel is still alive with occasional reported sightings of her around Christmas time. And this has led to other theories that she has been kept long-term by an abductor against her will. Others believe they're all dead, having left the mall that day with someone they knew and they were later met with foul play. Rusty Arnold still maintains a Facebook group that's dedicated to examining tips related to this case And he told NBC5 News he would be the first to admit he is consumed by finding out what happened. He said, quote, I spend maybe four to eight hours a day on this case, digging and searching. I'm not going to ever stop until we find out. Over the years, searchers have continued to comb through Texas brush and have explored hundreds of back roads. The families have walked creek beds and country roads, only to come up with nothing. With almost five decades worth of Christmases having passed, the case remains unsolved. If anyone has information on the Fort Worth missing trio, they're being urged to contact the Fort Worth Cold Case Department or the Texas Department of Public Safety's Missing Persons Clearinghouse at 512-424-5074. And I will be sure to also put this in the show notes. And that is the story of the Fort Worth trio. Such a sad case. I mean, three young girls who just were anxious to get some shopping done. They were looking forward to Christmas and then just nothing. And As with a lot of these disappearance cases, I just, I can't imagine never knowing what happened, not having justice. I mean, how do you sleep at night? How do you move forward as a family? Thank y'all for listening to this episode. If you've been enjoying the podcast, there are ways you can support you can tell your friends and family about the podcast. You can share the podcast link on social media. You could leave a five-star review on whatever platform you're listening on, and you can also follow the podcast. Don't forget, you can send topic requests or email me stories at perplexitymysterypodcast at gmail. You can also follow me on Instagram for perplexity updates at Podcast feel free to DM me stories there as well. I love hearing from you guys. Thank you so much for listening, and I will talk to you guys soon. Bye!